0: This is all an illusion. Hey, hey, what's up? Love that song. Welcome to the 17th episode of Two Writers, Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master, by the sizzling MC White Owl, and this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms—from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Jonathan Eig, the New York Times best-selling author of five books, including the brand new and insanely fantastic *Ali: A Life*. John is a brilliant author whose research is beyond compare—hundreds of interviews, FBI files, digging that borders on stalking—which is just the way it should be. So let's talk about Muhammad Ali and the art of biography with one of the greatest of all time, and I mean writers, not boxers. Right now, on Two Writers Slinging Yank. So, Jonathan, thanks for doing this. First of all, and um, you know, I've been thinking. I feel like to a certain degree, we have very parallel existences. We both have the same agent. We, we both have what? last books with Hod Mifflin. Uh, we both do this for a living. We both have read many multiple sports books. I feel like you can do it when your book comes out, and I'm always paralyzed by fear. <laughs> am I? Am I wrong in that?
1: No, I'm I'm paralyzed by fear too. But I, it's like a seesaw. I go from from paralysis with fear to um, to the thrilling uh, moments of, of feeling like uh, I might fl- I might take off and fly. But then then the seesaw goes back down, and I'm I, I hit the I hit the ground, and I'm frightful again I'm, I'm afraid again
0: i mean do you enjoy what part do you enjoy do you enjoy more the writing the process of it all the two years or whatever of non-stop muhammad ali or do you enjoy the month of pr promoting you're in the sunlight
1: and people are seeing the book no i like the work much better i'd much rather be out there just doing it and i i would i would have kept doing this book for the rest of my life if i could have. <laughs> I, I i seriously would have just kept interviewing don king and and uh, george foreman and larry holmes and all of ali's family i would have just done it for the rest of my life because it was so much fun and and the writing part was fun too um really if there's a way that that i could have you know put it out in, in serial form and, and spaced it out over the next you know 35 years or something like that that would have been great so
0: you would say this was uh, of the books you've written this was the most the most enjoyed like pure enjoyment you got out of a project
1: yeah by far i mean it they were all fun and i loved all my stories that i've that i've done, but. Um, this one had live victims, you know, people I could go and interview, um, you know, for Garrick. I think I did 30 interviews and that was really scraping to find people who had like seen him passing on a train or something right. or had been in the ballpark when he played. Um, but here I am interviewing people who had sex with him, people who, you know, who um, who went running with him, um, people who fought him in the ring, you know, it all, all, and out of the ring. So, I mean, it was just it was incredible. Right. Um, so let me,
0: let me start with this. I um I would never have written this book, but that's not, that's not an insult anyway. Like I would never have had the balls to write a Muhammad Ali book because I would think to myself, I would look at, I would go to Amazon and I'd look at every book that's ever been written and I'd see the 700 Muhammad Ali books and I'd see really good writers who have written Muhammad Ali books. And I would think to myself that there's nothing left for me to write. And then I read your book, which I did read. And I'm like, oh my God, there was so much left to write, but how were you not intimidated just by the pure number of Ali
1: books that existed? Um, you know, the funny thing is I wasn't intimidated at all. I was more intimidated by Ali and the scope of the project and what I, whether I'd really be able to do it justice. But the, um, nobody had done the biography. So I felt like, I mean, yeah, Mailer, uh, Plimpton, um, uh, you know, so many great writers who have covered him, um, but and David Remnick, too. But um, nobody had done the full blown biography. And I figured that there just had to be a ton of new information out there and, and people who were you know, willing to talk in ways that they hadn't before. You know, uh, Mailer and, and, and those guys couldn't go interview Ali's ex-wives because they weren't even ex-wives yet. Right. Right. That's interesting.
0: Um, so how do you start?
1: How do you. All right. I'm going to do a Muhammad Ali book. What do you do? Uh, first I start faking it and act like I'm actually qualified and I start calling these people and asking for interviews. Well, you
0: do, wait, you actually told me you do feel that way. Right? Like you feel like, cause I, I remember you said with Lou Gehrig, which was your first book that you were like, it was almost, um, I'm going to pretend that I have any business writing Lou Gehrig's biography. I mean, is that almost a mentality you have when you approach sort of these huge subjects? I'm going to pretend <laughs> at the beginning, yeah, I'm going to pretend.
1: That uh, that's literally how I feel, and it's, and it, and it's true. I, I, I'm not the, an expert on this. Uh, there are a lot of people who knew more about Lou Gehrig than I did on the day I began, and a lot of people who were better qualified to to write every one of my books. <laughs> but I just decide that I'm going to make myself an expert, and in the beginning that means I have to fake it and, and, and hope that people don't get offended by my stupid questions. Right. All right, so you, you, you're, you're starting on – you, you
0: sign a deal to write a Muhammad Ali book. Um, right you get a contract you, you get a deal how mifflin says
1: i'll pay you to do it we'll give you x number of years what do you do i start interviewing people who i'm afraid might die if i wait too long um like so who would be an in, example in early like work. ferdy pacheco um and and people who i think might take a while to get ali's uh, brother was also you know he's up there in years he's not in good health so i start going after these guys right away uh, gene kilroy who was ali's business manager and was you know almost literally in every taxi and every hotel room with ali for 25 years. So these are and, and they're all up there in years. So I don't want to wait until I'm qualified to interview them. I need to do it right away. And, you know, at least three or four, maybe half a dozen people died um, during the process of writing this book, people I interviewed who, who didn't make it to see the book. So I might. So I think that's really important, even, even though I'm not really um, prepared for those interviews. So at the same time, I'm, I'm reading as much as I can, and I'm starting to look for where I'll find information and where I'll find new information, like archives and um, government uh, collections. And I start filing FOIA requests, because those things take years to get. So um, that's pretty much phase one, I
0: guess. Wait, how do you – so so you don't – all right, I, I need to speak to Ferdy Pacheco, who, for people who don't know, is was Ali's doctor, fight doctor, the fight doctor. Um how do you even you say you don't even feel qualified to be writing this book in a sense. So how do you, how do you approach for like literally what happened with Ferdie Pacheco?
1: Well, I I got his phone number, his wife answered the phone and I said, my name is Jonathan. I'm writing a book about Muhammad Ali and uh, I've written these other books and I used to work at the wall street journal. So you try to impress them a little bit with your credentials and, Uh and, uh, and you just hope that you can convince them to let you in the door. um, Even though, you know, It's it's an act of faith. It's like and you're hoping that really people just like to talk about themselves. That's what it comes down to, that they would let anybody in. If I was a college student and and if I was writing for my high school newspaper, they might let me in just because they like to talk about themselves. That's that often is the case. Um, But then with a lot of these guys in Ali, they wanted to be paid. The first thing they said was, you know, how much are you going to pay me for this? And Ferdy didn't ask that right away. Ferdy only asked that after we were sitting down and talking. Um, But so, so Ferdy's wife says, well, he doesn't like to talk about Muhammad Ali. And I said, "That's okay. I'll talk to him about other things. I'll ask him about himself. Um, you know, we, we won't talk about Muhammad Ali unless you know unless the subject comes up and he wants to talk about it." So she said, "Okay." Now, wait. When and, you say that, you know, in the back of your mind, obviously, you're going to talk about Muhammad yeah, Ali. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm not being honest about right. that. I'm. But if he's insistent that he doesn't want to talk about Muhammad Ali, then then that's that's up to him. But I'm going to try to get him to talk about Muhammad Ali. Right. Um. And in fact, that's what happened. I, you know, I got in there and and he said he didn't want to talk about Ali, and I. So well, let's talk about you. Let's, how did you get interested in Muhammad Ali? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and was he good? No, he was terrible. He hated me. He, he, he hated me and tried to throw me out of the house. If he wasn't in you know, kind of bad shape, I think he might have like physically put me out of his house. Right. Interesting.
0: Do you, so, I mean, does that still in a way go down as a win for you because you can at least
1: tell other people you interviewed Ferdy Bachek? Doesn't that have legs just in the fact that you were there? yeah just in the fact that I got him has legs, but then he you know I also got some really good stuff out of him, even in his anger he you know he kind of exploded and said some really interesting and and um important things I thought he said, you know, I asked him why he why um you know he why a doctor puts boxers in the ring if they know the doctors doctors are impaired if they know the fighters are impaired, and he said, you're the fight doctor your job is to is to is to help them fight, not to tell them not to fight um so
0: did he feel guilt over Muhammad, do you think there, I expressed or otherwise? Do you think he felt guilt over the Parkinsons and and what kind of became of him?
1: Yeah, I think he did feel guilt. He also felt pride that he was one of the few voices trying to get Ali to stop fighting. So at least he was, you know, he was right and he spoke up and he tried to take a stand. It may have been too late, and he maybe wished he had taken that stand earlier. But um, I think he was still proud that he said something.
0: Right. So, so do what. I mean, it just seems like with a subject that broad, like I can imagine being Ferdie Pacheco and someone I don't know calling me and saying I'm doing a book on Muhammad Ali and him thinking, ugh, you know, the thousandth guy calling me about mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali. So how do you, um, besides listing your credentials, separate yourself to show that you are serious and truly, you know, invested in this project?
1: I think there's two keys. One is just persistence. You just keep coming at them until they... Get tired of saying no. And then you um, you know, you build connections. So once I got um Gene Kilroy to trust me, you know, I sent him a, a box with all with all four of my books in it. And I sent him some of the articles I'd written. And um and I, I went out to Vegas to to meet him and and I said, You don't have to talk to me, I just want to meet you. Once I got him, and then I was able and, and he was in touch with everybody from Ali's world. He was able to called George Foreman, and he was able to call Veronica Porsche, Ali's third wife. Uh, he called Louis Farrakhan and said, this guy's okay, this guy's legit, you should, uh, you should talk to him. So, so Kilroy became a big, big advocate for me and, and helped me get more interviews. And the same thing goes with you know, with others. Once I got um, Khalila Ali's second wife, to talk, then she recommended um, other guys from Ali's entourage. That she told them that, that it was okay to talk to me. So it just kind of snowballs. Right. Um. The second wife was
0: was. I remember you telling me about this at the time. Was, uh, huge for you. No.
1: Yeah, she was really big, uh, and I and and she's part of the reason I was able to sell the book because I had done a, a couple of short interviews with her. Um. But then when I told her it was time to do the big interview, she said she wanted to be paid, and and it looked like I was going to lose her. It looked like she wasn't going to cooperate with the book at all, and I was really nervous because I promised in my proposal that I was that I had her cooperation. And, um, she wanted, you know, money and I wasn't going to pay her. And it was, looked like it was going to, was going to all come to an end. Our relationship was over. Um, but eventually I won her over again and we ended up doing tons and tons of long interviews. Wait, how do you, um, I'm, how do you go from someone demanding money to doing it all for free? How do you actually, how do you make <laughs> that transition? That seems like a toughie. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and it, it took a long time. So first of all, I just showed her how hard I was working. And then I started finding stuff. I, find, I found old pictures of her that she'd never seen, and I would send them to her. And um, then I was down in Florida where she lived, and I called and asked her if I could take her to dinner. And I said, you know, we don't have to do an interview, but, you know, just take you out to dinner. And so, you know, I'm, I'm basically stalking her. Right. And, uh, and, and then when we went to dinner, that, that first time that I went, went down there, she, um, said, did you bring a tape recorder? And I said, yeah. She said, well, I, I decided I'm going to work with you because, um, this is going to help me write my book. So, um, you're like, whatever it takes helping me, you know, whatever it takes. She, she, she said, maybe you can be my ghostwriter for my book. I said, no, I won't, not going to be a ghostwriter, but I'll give you the tapes of our interviews and, uh, and you can use the tapes of our discussions to, uh, to get started on your own book. And she liked that idea. So we, uh, so we got rolling and then, um, you know, I think we became, you know, we we developed a really nice relationship, and you know, it goes on for three years. So I mean, sometimes she gets really mad at me, and she won't talk to me for a month or two, and uh, then something, then she calls me one day, and all is forgiven. I can never tell, you know, why, <laughs> but uh, but that's the way it goes with with relationships that that last, you know, that long.
0: Do you ever feel? I I, I guess I'm projecting because I definitely do. Do you ever feel? in a sense that you are using people, um, because we are in a way, you know, like you're going down to take her out to dinner, not because she's your buddy. You're going out to take her out to dinner because you want to get information. I've done the exact same thing. Um, are we, is there a line that we have to be careful not to cross? Is there a line that you feel like we do sometimes cross, you know, are, are you comfortable with everything you do? Are you, do
1: you know what I mean? Cause it's salesmanship. A lot of it is actually salesmanship. Yeah, the whole process is 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 a is relationship and it's, you know, what's that Janet Malcolm book all about the um the, you know the relationships of journalists and and their sources. Um it it is a business relationship and it is uh, I am getting something out of it and I can pretend that I'm an objective um correspondent who's a merely documenting history for the sake of history, but that's baloney. Um you know, and when these guys say to me, you know, Ali's brother said to me, um you're getting paid to write this book, right? And if I'm in the book, I make your book better, and that makes your book more valuable, and, and, and you make more money, right? So why shouldn't I get some of that? Um, What's your reply? His per- I said, you're absolutely right. It makes perfect sense when you put it that way. But I just don't do it because it's unethical. But he doesn't care about my ethics. Right. Um, he doesn't care that you know I'm concerned that, uh, about the perception that I'm paying sources and that the sources might might just tell me what I want to hear because they're getting paid. Yeah. Who cares? Just give me the money. I totally get that, um, but you know, it's a, and 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 it's a fun, it's you know, it's a soft line in the sand because I'm buying dinner for him, or I'm buying drinks, and I'm, I bought one of his paintings for a hundred dollars, and and uh, and Gene Kilroy told me to, to, to deliver um, five hundred dollars because Gene sends him money every month, and and that helped me get the interview too because I was bringing cash, even though it was from Gene, not from me. So it's all very messy. That's really interesting.
0: It's hard. The other thing I find interesting is. We're writing biographies, and they are, you know, they are biographies by every, every definition of the word. But I always think there's a, there's, a, there's a flaw to it, which is we don't actually know what the guy was thinking. You know what I mean? Muhammad Ali walks into the ring against Larry Holmes. We can presume we know what he was thinking. We can interview everyone who was there. We can read every article about it. We can read his thoughts on it, you know, relayed later, later on. But we don't know exactly what he was thinking. And I always struggle with that because I don't know how to overcome that completely, or do we even need to?
1: I think you got to be honest with the fact that you that you can't do that; that you can only write the facts. I mean, I didn't get to n- know Ali, and, you know, personally. But even if I did, even if I were writing a biography of my wife, who I, you know, have spent the last twenty three years with, and you know, discussed almost everything with her, I still couldn't tell you what she's thinking so you know right. um most of the time i don't know what she's thinking um but um it's presumptuous as all hell to 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 to, to, to claim that you are writing someone's life story um and i think that's the challenge of the whole um craft or, or art or whatever you want to call it i think it's more craft than art but uh, that's a different sto- different conversation i think th- the whole challenge is to get as much as close as you can to that life to really illuminate it to show um why that life matters and to show what made that person um important and and what made him tick but ultimately you have to leave it to the reader to 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 make some of these judgments themselves because you can't know what a person's thinking and if you if you pretend you know what a person's thinking then you're getting into the world of fiction and and you're 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 you're, you're basically lying to your reader do you, are you are you
0: comfortable sort of finding out um how bad of a womanizer he was and sort of how not great he was with women you know you're writing about this guy you admire you're writing about this guy who's a hero um, but you're also writing a definitive biography so you know you 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 can't sugarcoat for the sake of sugarcoating so when you find out this stuff is there any part of you that's like ah fuck i'd rather not know this or i could you know and and is there if you also have to ask yourself how much do i use how much do i not use when is it kicking puppies.
1: No, it hurt to watch him doing these things. And um, especially with the way he treated women, you know, I found myself taking it personally, like, stop doing this, you know, you're, you're killing me. And uh, when he when he kept fighting, or when he kept uh, you know fighting too long, or when he when he treated Joe Frazier, so so horribly, I, I was just rooting for, for him or for somebody to, to put a stop to it. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, it's, it's, it's his life, and he lived it. And my job is just to chronicle it as honestly as I can and you know, not trying to pretty him up and I'm not trying to take him down. I'm just reporting it the way I see it. But
0: I, I found like uh, with Walter Payton, I found I found sex life a very complicated thing because it tells a lot about a person. And at the same I kept I, I kept wondering to myself, let's say I just found out or let's say you just found out Muhammad Ali cheated on his wife one time. Like there wasn't a pattern of, of affairs and infidelity. But he cheated on a wife one time. Um, you know, one night in Vegas or something—is that still important, or is it is it the repeated, uh, you know, efforts that make it more than than just a thing?
1: I think it all just depends. You know, if it, if he if he only did it one time, but it destroys an otherwise perfect marriage, and his wife never trusts him again, then it's important. If he only did it one time and he got away with it and and he regretted it, and, uh, and or if he explained it to his wife and they moved on past it, that tells you something about him too. Um, you know, ultimately, it's not to focus on on any particular one thing, but to look at the pattern of the man's life and what does it say about him. And in all these cases, it says a lot about him. And, and it really, you know, is an important part of the, of the pattern. Right. Do you worry about what
0: people are going to think when you're, write, when you're writing the book? Are you thinking to yourself, um, I hope people like this. I hope people don't like this. I hope this appeals to X audience or Y audience. Do you think about
1: that stuff at all? I think about it, but I try to ignore it. And ultimately, I, I I'm writing for a higher authority than that. I'm writing for the average reader, and, and and I'm writing for for history and and making. And I just have to, you know, you have to be fair and honest. That's the most important thing. But yeah, I, I think about it all the time. Right. Interesting. I try not to,
0: because then you end up <laughs> writing. Yeah, you know, you end up writing what you don't want to write, or you end up. If you you know if you start thinking what are boxing fans you're you know there's just too many people to think for um, yeah that's um, true you uh you, when you when you were uh, started working on this book Ali was alive and you tried um, very hard to get an audience with him um, what were those efforts like
1: it was uh, stressful. Um... You know, I began early on, and his wife said, "No way. Um, it, we only, you know, it's not an authorized product, so we can't cooperate. If the uh, Ali licensing company doesn't authorize this, then we'll have nothing to do with it." And I, I, I went to a couple of public events where Ali was expected to appear, and, and he didn't show up. But but I met her, and I told her, you know, how hard I was working on this book. And at one point, she finally said, "Okay, well, you should meet Muhammad if you're, you know." I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be." working on this for five years and I'm gonna be talking about him for the rest of my life and it would just be really nice to, 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 to meet him and, and she said yeah you should definitely come and meet him so I kept trying to make appointments and didn't work out one point Lonnie invited me to the house I brought my daughter my daughter with me because Muhammad loves kids and we went to the house but Ali was not feeling well that day so we sat in the living room for two hours and Ali was in the next room and I didn't get to meet him what'd you um, do it what'd you do in the living room for two hours Oh, my God. I, 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 I went crazy, ma- mainly. I talked to Lonnie and, and Lonnie and I and my daughter and I talked to Lonnie for two hours. My daughter was like counting the, the little studs on the sofa in, in the living room. And, you know, like and I was encouraging her to count them over and over to make sure she got it right, because I figured the longer we spent there, the better chance that Muhammad might come out of his bedroom and say hello. And I, I had this fantasy that of him like coming out and he's 30 years old again and he's wearing like the blue leisure suit from the 70s and he's shuffling and throwing jabs at me. You know, I just I imagined him coming out from behind me and uh you know and, and, and tweaking my ear and you know, but you know, I I was just stalling for time, trying to stay in the house as long as I possibly could. Um but it, it didn't work. After two hours, you know, it was clear he wasn't coming out and Lonnie kind of started suggesting that it might be time for us to go. So we finally left and um and then a few months later I tried again. He was in he was gonna be in Louisville for a fundraiser. Um, for an award, actually, uh, Sports Illustrated was giving him an award, so I drove down there, and um, and this time he showed up, and um, this, and I, I, to make a long story short, um, after I I went drinking with Larry Holmes beforehand, mm-hmm. had a few, and uh, and then I spotted Ali at the table, and and basically ran to get there first um, as the doors were opening, and, and Lonnie introduced me to him. And I was a nervous wreck, but I, I I leaned over and I whispered in his ear, and I told him I was writing this book, and uh, I told him it was you know, an enormous responsibility, and I was working as hard as I could, and I asked him if there was anything that he wanted to say and you know, he didn't answer um, you know I couldn't tell whether he even you know heard me or not, but but uh, Lonnie said later that he definitely heard me, and he knew I was working on the book and she then invited me to come and read him some of the book. Um, but he passed away before I could do that.
0: Wow, that I did not know. That must have been so. I imagine his. It's really interesting. Because, I mean, to be working on a book uh, and someone die while you're in the process. Must be. I mean,
1: I mean, what did it feel like for you when he died? It was like I lost a family member because I mean I'd spent at that point three years, maybe more um, you know, completely immersed in his life. I mean, I was studying him. I knew things about Ali that Ali didn't know about himself. Um, and when, when he died, it was like this, it just, it was like a, you know, shot to the gut. It just totally took the wind out of me. Um, but then I also felt like, Oh man, I better hurry up and finish this book because, uh, some other people might have the idea to write a, a biography now that he's passed away. So uh, at the same time, I felt like I better just, uh, up and get it done. And then I went to the funeral and that was really amazing because I mean, as much as that time as I'd spent um, learning about Ali to see the, the reaction of people when he died was unbelievable. I, I had never seen anything like that. Tens of thousands of people from all over the country just showing up there to stand on the street and watch his, his hearse go by. Um, it was incredibly moving. I can't think of anyone else in this country who, who would get that kind of a send off. How do you explain it? You know, because it's funny after reading your book, I hope
0: you take this right. Like after reading your book, he's just a guy, you know. Like he's he's a, he had a fascinating life, a fascinating life, but he was a guy with just flaws, and he fought Trevor Burbank, you know, and he you know, and, and he was just a he was a guy, just like the Pope is a guy, and just like you know Dalai Lama is a guy. Like, but how do you explain it now, having sort of lived through Muhammad Ali's
1: eyes for, for all these years? How do you explain it? You know, I think it's it, it, to put it like in, in a real small nutshell, I think it's because he got up when Joe Frazier knocked him on his ass in, in 1971. I think that's the real turning point. You know, he was the most hated man in America for a while, certainly the most hated man in white America. And, and, and he, he turns out, to, you know, he stands by his principles. He, he takes this punishment for, for refusing the draft. Vietnam becomes unpopular and we begin to see, hey, maybe he was right. And then Joe Frazier knocks him on his butt and he gets up and, and keeps fighting somehow and fights his way back to the heavyweight championship. And then he gets, you know, knocked down again by Parkinson's and, and he's not afraid to let people see his hands shaking when he lights the torch. I think that was really the key, you know, his, his rebellion, his, his um, protest of the war, all that is important. But the main thing is that, that he just showed how tough he was. And, And I think that, and that he was willing to take that kind of punishment, um, I think that's what really moved people the most. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, do you do you
0: um do you live in fear? So your your book comes out, and I knew your book was going to sell well. I had no doubt your book was going to sell. Well. I mean, I knew your I knew more than any book I've ever seen actually of someone I've known <laughs> that your book was going to sell well, and it is. Um, the first day your book you know it's release day or whatever. Are you? What do you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Does it, does it live up to the hype when the book comes out? Does it live up to the hype? Does, is it worth the, the
1: toil? Um, or is it anticlimactic at all? What does it feel like? You know, it's, it, it's weird. It's, it's exciting and, and it's unbelievable to have people like ask you for an autograph to you know, sign a book that never gets old. And, and the fact that like my kids can see me on TV, unbelievably thrilling. Um, but it also feels like, oh my God, this is—I spent four years on this, and it's going to be over in like a blink of an eye, and then I'm going to have to go back and, and write another one. Right. <laughs> and, and 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 I try to tell myself that well, people are going to be reading this book for years to come, and that um, and they they'll be reading it after I'm dead, and 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 that's all you know, maybe maybe nice and maybe true, but the, it, it also just feels like uh, at, at least it, it, I, I, I I alternate. Sometimes I just feel like, oh my God, it just—it's uh, a lot of work for for a couple of weeks of of glory, (laughs) but uh, I I, I know that's not really true. I remember after my bar mitzvah,
0: 1985, Mount Kisco Holiday Inn. um, (laughs) I remember my emotion. It was the first time I ever felt this, where I was like, is that it?
1: You know what I mean? Is that it? That's it? Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. That's it. And sometimes I do get that at the end of a book where I'm like, oh, you know, the last TV interview comes and you've done the last radio hit. And all the excerpts have been run, and you kind of move on. You just kind of got to move on. But there's a sense—I don't know. It's almost like a sense of mourning, isn't it? A little bit, a weird kind of thing. You're not there yet, obviously. But when you get— Yeah. There,
1: no, it is. It is. And you hope that that um, that that it will have an afterlife or a second wind, or that people will still care about it years later. But yeah, it does feel like um, like it's 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 a it's a huge letdown, and it's a you know you're and you say to yourself, I don't know if I really have the guts to do that again can i spend four years on another project is there another life that i can you know dive into that i'm going to care enough about to, to really do it but then you know then you get started and and you do it again right i made a comment the other day on social media and i couldn't tell if
0: you were being serious or not but i um i was ta- i don't remember where i was talking about how um i find book writing i love it like i love it the way you love it i love every almost everything about it but i do find it very isolating um and kind of, you know, kind of lonely. And there's a lot of time in your head, and there's a lot of time sitting in front of a laptop in a quiet area. Um, do you know? Does
1: that not? Does that not bother you? Are you fine with that? Do you enjoy that? Um, yeah, I, I'm okay with it because I'm all, you know, surrounded by my kids and my wife and you know, a million other distractions. So like being able to focus on one thing, especially now, when it's so much harder to focus on anything. Um, I, I like having that. Isolation. I used to work in a newsroom and I loved being around people all the time. But uh, this is good too. There's uh, there's something to be said for this kind of uh, solitary work. Just having the responsibility. I'm also a runner, so like I like being alone out there uh, on on the on the lakefront in Chicago and and in the winter, just like pounding away one step at a time. And then when you get done, feeling like you uh, like you did something that not a lot of other people could do, especially when it's you know ten below. Um, so, so I, I, I don't mind the, uh, the isolation. Do you come up with a lot of your ideas, writing ideas, thoughts, concepts while you're running? Oh, totally. Yeah. I can, like, I can write a whole newspaper column on a run (laughs) and, and I come back and I just have to put like a towel down on my desk so I don't sweat all over everything. And I can, and I can bang it out in, in like as fast as I can possibly type because I've got the whole thing composed in my head. Wow. That's amazing. I envy
0: that. Um, I'm interested in one more thing here. You, um, You've gone all out uh, promoting this book. Uh, I'm guessing more than you ever have before. I think you hired three different publicists. You have a website. You have an Instagram account. You started a podcast. You, uh, you're on Twitter. You're you know kind of everywhere. Have you figured it out? Do, like, do you, if someone were literally to say to you, "How do I promote my book? What is the best way to promote my book?" You tell them what?
1: Write about Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know what my next book is going to be now. It's going to be Ali too. The better no, Ali-, Ali
1: is selling this book. Not me. I mean, if I, and I, I say this to people all the time, I tell people don't write that book. Um, because if there's no market for it, you're not going to be able to create a market for it. Um, I tell people all the time, wait for the next idea to don't do that one. Because if there's not a market for it, you're, it's really hard. And I, occasionally you're wrong. Like who would have, Thought that there was a big market for sea biscuit, or you know, um, boys on a lakes right. right? Or right. boys on a boat. So, but but by and large, it's the it's the story that that has to you know that has to have a market. I think so. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've, I. don't. I don't think I figured it out at all. I think selling books is still really really hard, even with Muhammad Ali uh, in there throwing punches for you. Well, it's really interesting because your subjects are interesting. You wrote Garrig,
0: which strikes me as a you know. There are certain subjects that you go in and they give you a shot immediately, right? You know what I mean? You could do nothing. and Ali book has a shot. A Garrick book has a shot. Jackie Robinson, which you wrote in 2007, has a shot. Al Capone, I think, has a shot, but it's a little tougher. And, mm-hmm. you did, and then you wrote a book, The Birth of the Pill, um, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, 2014. And of your books, that strikes me as a book that is the hardest sell because it's not automatic. It's not like, oh, Muhammad Ali. There's a huge fan base of boxing and blah 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 blah. Um, did you find that the hardest to sell, and and did you come up with any conclusions on marketing off of that experience?
1: Yeah, it was the hardest to sell. I knew it was going to be the hardest to sell. I got the smallest advance <laughs> for that book because my publisher thought it was going to be the hardest to sell, and it turned out to be the you know the hardest to sell. It and, and and you know it it it. Um, I don't know what I learned from it, except that I felt like it was a really important story, and even if it didn't sell, I wanted to do it because it was—it was, it was just—it was important, and it was just a great, great story um, that that people needed to hear, and nobody really knew this knew about it. And you know, if it gets—it's been optioned for a TV series. If that thing gets made, then maybe it'll find an audience, and more people will know about it because I think it's just such a great story. These the, these guys who who invented the pill are. are you know they should be remembered as like incredibly important American revolutionaries right and um so I was willing to take a chance on that one um because I just loved the story so much it's so interesting because we it's a constant battle
0: right like I have a book coming out about the USFL next year which we've talked about and um and nobody wanted that book nobody wanted the book but you as a writer, you're like, no, this is a great book. I know this is a great book. I know it's a great book. I know it's a great book. But nobody wants it. So it, it's almost a matter of how far, how cheap, how cheaply are you willing to write a book?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it costs us. It's, to, you know, you only have so many books in you. You only have so much time before, you know, you we cash out. And um, you got to, it's got to really mean something to you to take it on because even, you know, the, the, even with the big ones, there's no, there's no guarantee it's going to sell. So you got to feel good about it. you got to feel like this is something that you will not be mad at yourself for sacrificing a couple years of your life or a few years of your life on it. Right. Um, let me ask you a final question.
0: People, uh, I know you, you must get this all the time because I get this all the time and we do the exact same.
1: We're in the same business.
0: I really want to write a book. I really want to write a
1: book. What do you think? <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. You say don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Everybody's got a book in them, and most of them should keep it inside there.
0: Don't you feel like you're crushing dreams, though, when you say that? Because I think that, but I don't really always say it.
1: Yeah, I I, I usually say don't do it. Um, you know, start a blog. Go ahead and have fun with it. Maybe you'll find an audience, and, and then you can, if you find an audience, you can turn it into a book. But you're just going to end up, you know frustrated i think most of the time um so and 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 if i say that to somebody and they're absolutely passionate about it they're not going to listen to me anyway they're going to go ahead and do it so i don't mind being being a
0: downer right you know the other thing that frustrates me a little i don't know if you've ever think this like and we've had many discussions about book writing in the process and i mean we write different books but but we both put our hearts and guts into this thing you know, and we interview hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and we will travel around the country to find little stupid details that nobody would, in their right mind, would care about. And sometimes when someone's like, "I want to write a book too," I always, feel, I, I feel a little bit like it's like going up. Not that we're, I'm not comparing myself to any great major leaguer. I'm not saying that, but it's like going up to a major <laughs> leaguer and saying, "I want to play for the Yankees too," and you're like, "Do you have any idea how big of a nightmare this thing is and how hard it is? Do you know what I mean? Aren't you ever
1: like, yeah, it, it, just, but, yeah." You know if you can do it and you can and, and you you can go out and do the you know, hundreds of interviews and spend you know four years working on it and do, give it your best shot go for it you know nobody's gonna nobody's going to tell you not to try nobody nobody can make you stop if you want to go out and do it go for it but right. um, just know how hard it is and and like I said the rewards are terrific if you can pull it off it's a, it's a beautiful thing to to accomplish and it's a nice way to make a living right I agree with you well, listen. I um,
0: I appreciate your time here, and I love this book. Yeah, I told you. I mean, oh, I love this book. I think mean, it's a it's a great, great biography, and I'm excited for your next book, the Trevor Burbick biography. <laughs> <laughs> when when can we
1: expect that in stores? Any day now.
0: <laughs> um. All right, Jonathan. Thank you so much for your time. I, I I do appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jeff. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. I want to thank today's guest, Jonathan Eig, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can visit Jonathan's website at jonathaneig.com. Follow him on Twitter at jonathaneig. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. The music is by MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.